Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil. This episode is the first part of a two-part series with Clay Stamp, the executive director of the Opioid Operation Command Center in Maryland. So now, please enjoy part one of my conversation with Clay Stamp. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover Two Resources. The number of drug overdose deaths in Maryland has surged by 66% from 2015 to 2016. 2,089 deaths in 2016 represented an unprecedented loss of life from drug overdoses in Maryland. Governor Hogan has declared a state of emergency over the opioid epidemic. In fact, he did that in March. In January of 2017, the Opioid Operational Command Center was established under the Interagency Heroin and Opioid Coordinating Council by executive order. Here to talk with us about the Opioid Operational Command Center and a coordinated response to the opioid epidemic in the state of Maryland is Mr. Clay Stamp, the executive director of the command center. So Clay, welcome. Thank you, Greg. Good morning. Okay, good morning. So maybe we can start off by just kind of talking about the impact that the opioid epidemic has had within your state. And uh, perhaps we could use the backdrop of the governor's election back in 2014 to do that. Sure. Uh, um, Thank you. And thank you first for uh, being here uh, and and helping helping, uh, communicate the importance of this crisis. Uh, specifically in this crisis, we need to combat that stigma and we need to shine the light on this. And so people that can communicate the message uh, are very important, so thank you. Um, I'm a crisis manager. It's what I've done all my life, an emergency manager. So I've been trained uh, to wrap organizational structures around crisis and, uh, and drive a strategy to remedy it uh, as an emergency manager. And in the United States, we have a national response framework to do that. Uh, the governor asked me to come on board to help him with this crisis. Um, and the reason why is obvious when you look at the numbers. But the governor, when he, when he pulled me in, he said, he said to me that when they were campaigning for office uh, in 2014, 
Uh, when they traveled all over Maryland, they thought that people would be asking questions about the economy um, and, and such. But what, what he heard everywhere in Maryland, whether it's the far reaches of Western Maryland and rural Maryland, Southern Maryland, Eastern Shore, and in the suburban and urban areas, is you have to do something about the heroin and opioid crisis. Too many people in our communities are dying, and it's ripping our communities apart. Well, back in 2014, that resonated that loud and clear, the, the biggest issue. It did. In it the did. campaign season. And he immediately asked the lieutenant governor, uh, Boyd Rutherford, to lead an effort um, uh, to pull a task force together. And that task force was very well represented uh, with people from all over Maryland. And, and that's, you know, they developed a report. Um, and that task force report is the foundation of virtually all of our actions today. I think it's important to so note that Governor Hogan believes he was elected governor of Maryland because he made addressing the opioid epidemic a central theme of his campaign. The state of emergency that was declared, because this hits near and dear to my heart, because um, our state, as you know, state of Ohio, is struggling with this. And we've elected not to go in the direction of declaring it a state emergency. Your governor did that, and he did that, I believe it was in February of this year. So I want to start, I want to dig into this by just talking a little bit about, you know, why the governor declared it a state emergency, and then what have you been able to do that otherwise would have been impossible without doing that? Sure, Greg. Uh, first, it's entirely appropriate to declare this a, a, you know, a state of emergency because you know, clearly when you look at the number of fatalities and the number of people that are overdosing, uh, the human toll is significant. What I learned surprised me. In Maryland, the primary driver for declaring the opioid epidemic a state of emergency was utilization of the Maryland Command Center. This was specifically pulled together um, to, en to enhance the ability of the Maryland Emergency Management Agency to deal with this and specifically focus on the opioids. And so what it's designed to do is pull together 14 state agencies, predominantly, and to reach out into the private sector, sector at the state level uh, to generate um, goals and objectives to push, um, to break down silos, but to support our local jurisdictions. The second piece of that is to create, in Maryland, 24 different local coordinating bodies led by the health officer and the emergency managers. In any emergency, you have what I refer to as a sector lead. If we have a transportation emergency, it's transportation, law enforcement, law enforcement. This is a public health emergency. Can I jump in sure, as to why 24? How did that number come about? So we have 24 counties in Maryland. Okay. Okay, and, and there are emergency management jurisdictions. And there's actually 26 because we have the city of Annapolis and the city of Ocean City. So we have created um, 24 um, local coordinating bodies that have rolled together to bring together a cross-section of the community uh, to address this crisis from a balanced perspective, and that's important. And that balanced perspective is prevention, enforcement, and recovery by, through the expansion of treatment services. So, so the state and the local coordinating bodies are driving at a very high level coordination around the goal to prevent deaths and overdoses from 
you know, drug overdoses. Um, and in the, in, the, in the second, the third element of this is information sharing. And it's critical that we become very good at information share, sharing, not only externally, but internally. That we flow information between the silos that traditionally are there and between state and local efforts. And that we communicate a common message. You know, in this crisis, it's really important. When we, when we have a hurricane or we have a, an environmental crisis, you know, we pull very smart people together to come up with a, a, con- a consensus strategy to drive a solution, and everyone gets together and we do it, right? This one's challenging because there are competing interests, there's stigma, mm-hmm. and, and there's a propensity for people to want to ignore the problem like it's going to go away. So, so it's really important that we target our energy around a single strategy of a balanced approach. And so one of those elements of mobilization is to really sell that balance so that we are not only attacking it from a treatment perspective, but we're, tra- we're attacking it from a prevention perspective and an enforcement perspective. Each one's important. Look, it's, it's no secret that in our country, uh, it's not been a priority. Uh, it's not been a large priority uh, to provide treatment for substance use disorder. Yep. And there's an opportunity here because to, to ex- not only expand services, but to make sure we're adequately using the services that we have now, number one. Mm-hmm. And we're actively engaged in doing that. Number two, we have to realize that um, people with substance use disorders that are addicted to these drugs, they're better served to be in treatment rather than to be in jails. That didn't work. You know, we've tried that before and it didn't work. No question about it. So our law enforcement community, they're engaged in, you know, being able to um, port these individuals into treatment rather than arrest them. And we're building out programs to do that. That being said, you know, it's no, it's no secret that, and make no mistake, there are criminal organizations out there that are dealing poisons on our streets. And we have to, at a high level, make sure we're dis- disrupting it. Um, their operations. Sure. Now, that's not the long-term solution here because what we have is a supply and demand problem. Right. It's a business. And one thing the United States is good at in a capitalist society is to be able to provide uh, supply to demand. Mm-hmm. Okay, so mm-hmm. in this crisis, we have to remove the demand. And the only way we're going to remove demand is through prevention and education. And we have to get into our schools and our young people need to grow, and we need to arm them in elementary school so that when they get into that middle school experience, they're armed with what they need to come against those pressures. And, and as they grow, we want them to be able to be strong and be able to walk away, right? That's the future. We've done it before in this country. Smoking used to be cool. It's not cool. That's a really good analogy. Right. Yeah. We as a nation can do this, but, you know, we have to set the expectations that it did, we didn't get into this overnight, and we're not going to get out of it overnight. Sure. Now right? let's go back a little sure. bit. And let's talk about those silos. And you, you stressed communication and how important that is between these 15, 14 different entities out there, and uh, as well as the communities. So give us some examples of this communication that makes a difference and how you're able to go back and forth. Because, look, when I think about this and I think about all the people that I've talked to in the last two years about the epidemic, 
you know, most of them are running like crazy and, and just running to respond to this in their communities. And sure. A lot of these communities are just blowing up, doing the same thing, you know, treating yeah. people that have overdosed and yeah. the same people over and over again yeah. and, and this stuff. So they're kind of caught in their own, their own world and getting fatigued by it and everything else. How do you take time out from that and get them to talk? So, you know, you bring up a really good point, and, and that's responder fatigue. And, you know, in this case, uh, we have the two-edged sword. One, you know, we have, to, we have to engage in a planning process while responding because we don't have the luxury of time. You know, just in the state of Maryland, on average, we have six to seven people a day, a day dying. And, and, you know, those are real human beings, and we, we feel that. We feel the pressure of that. At the same time, we have to make sure that we, you know, we step away uh, from this uh, to a point where we can see the forest for the trees and make sure that we, we are adequately planning in those three areas that I talked about. It's exciting to see some of the things that are happening, happening here in Maryland in the Opioid Operational Command Center. You know, we're driving programs to expand treatment opportunities. We, you know, we, we have, the legislature passed the HOPE Act. Our Medicaid, Medicaid waiver has allowed uh, the business community to, to, to do better business in providing treatment services. Our enforcement partners are doing an excellent job. Our schools are reengaged in, um, uh, in, in reintroducing drug education into our communities. But, but what's even more exciting is when I walk into a meeting with, with a group of judges, for example, um, and I go into the room, and the first thing I say is, good afternoon. First thing I want to say is, I know nothing about judging. And I'm very nervous walking in a room, by the way. And the first thing they say is, do you have a guilty conscience? <laughs> and we all chuckle. Yeah. But within 15 minutes, you know, and I say to them, look, I, again, I don't know anything about judging, but I know this opioid epidemic is impacting your world. Um, do you have ideas? And, and within 15 minutes, ideas are just percolating through the room. And those ideas turn into opportunities, and those opportunities turn into objectives. Those objectives begin to drive action. So it's whether I'm meeting with the judges, whether I'm meeting with the faith-based community, whether I'm meeting with, um, you know, whoever, these groups of people. It's, it's like going fishing for ideas. You go grab them, you bring them in, and you start driving things, thinking out of the box. Because the one thing we know, uh, Greg, is to date, we've thrown everything but the kitchen sink at this and in all of our states, and the numbers continue to go up. I've always thought so the primary reason to declare a state of emergency was access to emergency funds. Clay made it clear. Having a neutral platform, i.e. the command center, was critical to their approach. Well, you know, Greg, I, I think, again, um, I, I think the state of emergency is critically important, frankly, um, because in crisis, you've got to break down stovepipes of government, and you have to provide a neutral platform for all bodies that are being affected to come together, develop and execute a strategy. So that would be the neutral platform would be the command center. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's critical. It's critical that um, any state attacking this uh, posture themselves uh, in this manner. Um, that's number one. And, and you would say that really that coordination and communication is probably paramount to this effort, more so than the additional funds that this brings about by declaring it a state emergency. Absolutely. 
You know, you have to get very smart people in the room to come up with ideas, number one. Number two, you have to engage the community. And we already have a system to do that. I mean, that's the emergency management and public health system. We need to break down the walls. We need to, we need to put ourselves in an optimal, optimal position for success. And so that's a foundational piece. The second foundational piece is that we drive it from a balanced perspective. Uh, this, this crisis in particular is very complicated because there are competing interests. I've run into people that believe that every bit of energy that we spend should be on treatment for people that have substance use disorder. I have people that believe we should spend every effort that we have and every dollar on prevention and others enforcement. But the reality is, is that uh, it's got to be a balanced approach. And, and, and tied to that is we don't have the luxury in this crisis to not have a targeted strategy in a balanced approach. I never thought about the competing interests in this before, and that's never been raised as, as a real issue. That's, that's very interesting. And at your level, you're going to see that, where others really wouldn't. Right. But again, it's, it's critically important if we really want to holistically attack this crisis. We, we have to sell that balance. Sure. And, and that's important because, again, I'll say it again, we don't have the luxury to not be targeted and focused in our effort here. The military counter-drug strategy. Um, not really sure what that's, I, I mean, I read about it, but um, beyond that, that's, that's outlined, and that's actually, so in the, uh, in the executive summary, they talk about how the Department of Counter-Drug Strategy section, they provide this um, military unique criminal analysis capabilities and get your... Um, the National Guard involved in this counter-drug program. And so the Guard's civil operations program enhances partnerships with the community, and, but they're able to utilize these criminal analysis capabilities. And sure. I, this was a whole new concept to me. I hadn't, hadn't heard of it before, and I've heard of many of these. Um, sure. We have, we have a very active National Guard in the state of Maryland, and mm -hmm. they, they are, they're, they're central in a lot of our efforts in the emergency management area. Um, and, and clearly, they're engaged uh, with our law enforcement criminal justice partners, um, you know, in doing analysis on that uh, enforcement side, as well as being able to have a, a reach into our communities because they're citizen soldiers. And so they, they're in our communities. So they, yeah. they're, they're a full partner in what we're doing. And, and so that, you know, that's one area. So, but that hasn't come up before. In all the communities that I've talked to, that hasn't come up before, utilizing the National Guard this way. Yeah. Well, again, these are citizen soldiers. They, they work side by side with uh, everybody in their communities until it's time for them to be called up. Terrific. Next, yep. let's talk about treatment on demand. Sure. Because you, you've dug into this. You yeah. know how critical that timing is. Yeah, I, I do. And, and so, you know, what, what I'll say to you is that when we talk about treatment, um, the first thing I'll say is that we recognize that uh, until somebody makes a decision that they want help, uh, anything we do is going to fall short of success. Yep. That being said, it's really important for us to look at what look at what are those intersections where people traditionally, you know, make a decision that they want help. 
Like over benefits of having a statewide coordinated neutral platform becomes clearer as we talk further about mapping programs to each of three opportunities to help people into treatment. So as we look at providing treatment, uh, medical system treatment or treatment on demand, we have to look at those three different buckets and take programs that are in each one of those and make sure that there are ladders connecting those programs so that when somebody makes that decision, they can walk through that program to a, a healthier lifestyle. Yep. And it's exciting to see what we're doing with some of those. For example, criminal justice. In Maryland, we have now three, soon to be four, what we call law enforcement assisted diversion programs. Okay, it's so... Um, let me just jump in. In Ohio, we've got what we call drug courts. And we do as well. Okay. Yep. So, yep. But this is different. What you're talking about is a little different from that. So I'm describing to you a bucket that's attached to a decision point, an intersection, where somebody meets a police officer and they may go to jail. Mm. Okay? So it's out in the field as yes. opposed to in the judges. Well, I'm going to take, I'm I'm take you through the bucket, okay? Right. So, so they meet the police officer. Traditionally, a police officer had one thing to do. You break the law, you go to jail, okay? Yep. Now what we're doing is we're building infrastructures through mobile crisis to be able to bring people into treatment fairly rapidly. So the police officer now has the ability to, one, arrest you, or two, divert you into treatment by accessing, doing a warm handoff to treatment. That's the first step in the bucket. If that doesn't work and you end up going, you get, a, get arrested, then we have court or we have drug court. So this is low level yep. in terms yep. of the arrest. Taking, yep. Low level charges that we're talking about yep. out there in the field. Yep. Obviously, it's not a dealer we're talking about. That's right. This is somebody that uh, maybe has paraphernalia on yep. them or is caught. Yep. Yeah. And so as I, as I bring you through the criminal justice bucket, if you will, um, it, you know, first as a police officer, they can, they can divert you to treatment. If that doesn't work, and you're arrested, you can go to court or drug court. If you go to drug court, you can get into a treatment program. Mm -hmm. If you go to court and you don't go to drug court and you get sentenced to, uh, to jail, we have, we're rolling out medical-assisted treatment in our, in our correctional facilities. We have 11, soon to be 14 of our correctional facilities throughout Maryland provide, providing Vivitrol treatment. So in the jails or the, um, uh, well, you said in, in, Department in the of Corrections as well. That's exactly so right. So penitentiaries yes. as well. Yes. And then, and then we follow them on the outside. We're putting screening programs in our parole and probation. So we're building out a structure so that when they make that decision, when they intersect with the criminal justice, there's a, there's a, there's a connection of programs through that track. We're doing the same with our emergency departments. We know that last year we had over 23,000 visits to our 49 hospital emergency departments for non-fatal overdoses from drugs and alcohol, and, and over 1,600 of those were for heroin and opioid. We also know that when we look at the deaths last year in Maryland, almost 60% of those deaths, um, they had visited the hospital emergency department as a non-fatal overdose. Wow. We need we 60, need to get help. That's right. Sixty percent. Right? Yeah, and that's a significant number. So sure. we know that we have to get programs to them. So we are aggressively instituting um, programs at all of our hospital emergency departments, standard discharge protocols, the introduction of peer support uh, specialists or peer support coaches, because those individuals that have achieved sobriety now can offer can offer a helping hand to those that. 
that need to take that journey. Mm-hmm. And in a number of our hospitals, we're rolling out um, a warm handoff and initial uh, buprenorphine treatment. Um, and so, um, again, in that track, when you intersect with the emergency department, we have programs that we're connecting for individuals. So let's talk about the buprenorphine, the better known as Suboxone. Yeah. And, and how does that program work? Because we did an interview with down in Palm Beach County where they're, they're doing that and uh, very successfully. Um, so they started in the ER, and then they actually, for the next eight days, they go to the patient's house and deliver. Right. Yeah. Right. And then they reassess them because they've stabilized. Right. And they get, get them into treatment. Yeah. How does your program work? So, so we're building the program out. And so what I want to say first, you know, when we talk about medical-assisted treatment or treatment generally, mm-hmm. this is about working with our physicians to develop a suite of tools in a toolbox, right? Because physicians, depending on a patient, will select a certain tool that's best for that patient. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. So we, we talk about buprenorphine or Suboxone. That's mm-hmm. one. Methadone mm-hmm. is one. Vivitrol is one. Mm-hmm. 12-step program is one. I mean, it depends on a physician's assessment of a patient. Sure. And what we have to do is make sure we build these tools out. So when we talk about buprenorphine, I mean, you know, the... You know, these are complicated patients, and physicians have to provide this medication. So the first thing we're doing is we're providing a, a consultation line for all of our physicians so that, so, wow. so that, so that they can get information, yeah. um, which, which we're finding uh, effective. Uh, the second thing is we, we are introducing it into four, now seven of our hospital emergency departments uh, around Maryland. And we're also working with our federally qualified health centers in Maryland. We have 22 of those centers across Maryland uh, serving underserved populations to introduce um, medical-assisted treatment for patients. So, so on a number of fronts, we are introducing these suite of options, which, you know, buprenorphine or suboxone is one of many tools. Yeah. Again, the others being Vivitrol, Methadone, or frankly, the, you know, the 12-step program. Or, or abstinence program. Yeah. So that hotline, that's something new as well. Yep. Haven't heard of that before. Right. That's right. fantastic. Yeah, we're rolling that out because, you know, again, you know, this medication uh, is, is being prescribed to complicated cases, and physicians need to have that support system to be able to access it. An important part of their overall process in Maryland is finding successful programs and replicating One of our strategies in Maryland, and, and this is where the state view comes in handy, mm-hmm. is that um, we have statewide visibility. So when we look at those 24 jurisdictions across Maryland, we're seeing what we call promising practices occurring. Mm-hmm. First step, low-hanging fruit, is to replicate those across sure. Maryland. Thank you for listening to part one of my conversation with Clay Stamp. Please join us next time for part two when we continue to talk with Clay about the ways Maryland is battling the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.